0: both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before introducing my guests for today's show, I wanted to share information about an upcoming webinar that will be held on December 14th at 5 p.m., entitled DC Icons Webinar 2021 Forecast, featuring true icons of the DC real estate market. Gary Rappaport of the Rappaport Companies, Tom Pizzuto of the Pizzuto Group, Ray Ritchie of Boston Properties, Matt Kelly, CEO of JBG Smith, and Diane Hoskins, co-CEO of Gensler Architects, the leading architectural firm in the country. Each of them will share their view of their respective slice of the market based on their expertise and we'll then prognosticate on those ideas amongst each other in the panel discussion. The link to registration for the event is on my website at coenterprises.com slash podcast and will be on the show notes of the episode as well. I hope you can join me for this special event again, December 14th at 5 p.m. and go to the show note link and uh, register for it. I'd appreciate it. Today, my guest is Kirk Metem, who is Executive Vice President and partner of Silman Engineering, a structural engineering firm that has designed the structures of many iconic buildings in its 50-year history. Kirk sees himself as an architectural engineer who synthesizes the science and arts of both disciplines into his work, on a collaborative basis. This leads to quality design that usually delights their clients. Kirk discusses growing up in the D.C. area and subsequently going to school in New York and staying there for much of his early career with three other firms building his credentials. Eventually, he met the founder of his firm, Bob Silman, who convinced him to join and build it to one of the preeminent structural engineering firms in the industry. Kirk opened the D.C. office and has solidified its reputation here with several projects in the region, including the Lincoln Memorial renovation, several of the Smithsonian buildings, both new buildings as well as renovations, the Supreme Court building renovation, and George Mason High School. In our discussion, we discuss taste and design and his firm's philosophies in design and hiring. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation from a structural design leader, Kirk Meadow. So Kirk, welcome to Icons of DCRA Real Estate. I appreciate your joining me today. Kirk, tell me about your current position Mm -hmm. and your role at Silman Engineering.
1: Well, I'm currently an, an executive vice president and one of the primary shareholders of Silman. And we are a structural engineering firm with offices
0: in New York, Washington DC, Boston, Ann Arbor. Okay. Tell me just a little bit more about Soman on a high level on what they do. Sure. We're a structural engineering firm uh, by name.
1: I think that we have a much broader perspective on uh, the industry than many of our competitors, which really translates into a wider variety of services and a wider variety of building types that we get involved in. But primarily, we're structural engineers, so we will produce the documents for a project, whether it be a renovation or a new building, to build the structural
0: frame or the skeleton of of a building. So how would you differentiate a civil engineer and a structural engineer? It's always a question I've wondered.
1: We're all civil engineers by training, so any structural engineer has a degree in civil engineering, so we're a subset of that. Within civil engineering, there are various other disciplines that include transportation, water resources, and uh, structural engineering and transportation. The structural engineers tend to focus more on, as I said, the framework of a structure and then a category of us that work with architects directly on buildings.
0: So let's go back to your, to your roots, where you grew up mm-hmm. and uh, what your parents, how they influenced you and how you got interested in what you're doing today. Cool.
1: I call myself a DC suburban brat. I grew up in the uh, in the suburbs of DC, but I would say that I had a really good sense of the city compared to most. I lived in Montgomery County, Bethesda, uh, Potomac. grew up grew up downtown Bethesda in the sixties, and then uh, moved out to the badlands of Potomac in the in the seventies. Um, <laughs> uh, my father worked in Bethesda, but my mother was uh, a professor downtown, and so we were. We were no strangers to the city and all all it had to offer, both in terms of culture and diversity. What did your mother teach? She taught interior design and textiles at Howard University.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: You know, I in terms of exposure, I have a lot of great childhood memories of the area. I'll get to it a little bit later, but I was gone for a good period of time. So it was fun to come back with a a you know, a a newly a new perspective on the world, but to retrace my old footsteps. So, you know, I remember the lighting of the White House Christmas tree with, uh, under President Johnson, and I remember going to a senator's game at at the RFK in the early, (laughs) you know, I saw the Rube Goldberg exhibit at the Smithsonian when it first came out, and I went to the Arts and Industries Building to see Apollo 11 after it came back. You know, these are, these are great, great memories, and Everywhere I go in the world, I, I realize how unique Washington, D.C. is.
0: So it's rare to have a, a, a native Washingtonian to talk to, but uh, this is great. I appreciate that. So, so you started in Bethesda when you were a little guy? Did you go to public school or private school?
1: I went to a private school for three years or so. I think my parents thought they had money, but they didn't. <laughs> uh, but, and uh, when we moved out to Potomac, we went to the public schools there. I would say, you know, the, one of the other great experiences, just to dwell on that for a moment, was my, my, my mother, right? you know, who was very active in, uh, she was a great, is a great cook, and uh, she was active in the, the Washington Gourmet Club. And one of the things that they did, which was fantastic, was somehow through the State Department or something, they connected with uh, foreign dignitaries. And when they would come to town for a few days, they would connect with my parents, and we would actually go downtown... And pick these people up and drive them through the city out to the suburbs to our house and have dinner and, and spend the evening talking or trying to talk. Many of them were, you know, English is a second language at best. But I remember this. So we had, you know, during uh, the worst, some of the worst international relationships, we had a lot of foreign dignitaries in our house uh, over for dinner. And so you have any you have Russians
0: or anybody that were
1: Yep. We had uh, uh, a number of different African nations and Vietnam. And, you know, so for a kid that only knew what I heard on the news or what I read in books, this gave a completely different and and our kind of respect for the importance of Washington, D.C.
0: How old were you at the time when you, your mother was doing uh, this? I'd say anywhere,
1: uh, they were doing that when I was from eight till about 12 or 13.
0: That must have been interesting. You oh. must have picked up a lot of cultural perspectives that you never would have had otherwise. Certainly had a sense of Washington as being a very unique place.
1: What did your dad do? Well, my dad is a, not surprisingly, an engineer.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: So that's the other half of my brain. He's, uh, he's an aerospace engineer with uh, Booz Allen in Hamilton. Oh, so he, okay. British, came over in 58 and uh, part of the brain drain and uh, came over, got married, they moved to D.C. and has worked for Booz Allen, worked for Booz Allen until he retired. So he's a lifer, engineer, uh, very much a, a, a real thinker. They realized early on that you give him the big picture projects and he brings a technical side to it, but he also is very much a dreamer. Very visionary in a lot. Was of he things. involved in the space program in an early on? No, no. I mean, the, that was purely a social kind of connection. So. But he was very much an engineer that would, you know, stay in his office and do his work.
0: Not one to climb the corporate ladder and that sort of thing. So Bo Allen though, is a big defense contractor Huge. as well as other. Was yep. that more, more what he was working on or yep. did he not tell you? Um, most of the time, he couldn't tell me. You know, it was when he
1: would uh-huh. home, I'd get a little glimpse of what they were. And they were they were very fantastic projects and those that were physical. And the, then, you know, he got very much into
0: communications, that kind of thing, as people do. So uh, it sounds like that both of them were an inspiration to you to some extent. Yeah, I think they both
1: taught me, you know, well, they, they they gave me what I have here, which is my brain and my predisposition. But they also, through watching them, I think I learned a lot of life lessons, and uh, very much, yes, did inspire me. My mother uh, on the design side, and she had a great passion for DC history and unearthing its its kind of hidden hidden history. And and my father, in terms of his uh, his just sort of, uh, I'll call it passion.
0: Also, passion for. For technology and design and advancement. Early on in your education, my guess is, you know, listening to what they had to say and some of the influences you heard mm-hmm. with your mother, you know, you probably thought, you know, this engineering thing sounds pretty cool. And you probably, because you're, both your parents were artistic as well as technical, you oh. probably have an inclination for, uh, for the arts and the sciences both. And then your discipline, I imagine, in the in the mathematics stage, is strong enough such that maybe that's the way I'm going to go. Was that kind of your thought? Well, there was a pivotal moment actually.
1: There, my mother had signed me up for a course in tenth grade, I think, which was in, in uh, experiences in architecture, and it was a summer course for high school students at Catholic University, and it was taught by Horace Wilson, who has been a, a mentor for many, many of the senior folks now in the profession. He's passed away now. He was a real great inspiration, and, but he, I didn't know it at the time, but he taught us this course. And to make a long story short, at the end of the course, we had to build a model of a little project we were doing. Uh, we had spent the week uh, running around D.C. drawing buildings and learning how to draw buildings, and, but then we had a design course. And at the end, he came over to my table where I was trying to build a model of this thing that I had come up with, and he asked, how, how's it going? And I said, well, it's fine, except I don't know how they're going to build it because the walls don't align. And he looked at me, he stepped back, and he looked at me, and he said, have you thought about engineering? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I hate to say it, but he was right. He went back to his office, and he pulled out two books called uh, on architectural engineering, and he said, bring them back tomorrow. And, you know, I didn't read them, but I skimmed them. And I saw these stories of these kind of the heroes of the, of that period, of mm-hmm. these great minds who, had, who are wrestling with the balance between art and science. And I said, bingo, there it is. So, you know, I applied to colleges, all the schools in the country that had an architectural engineering program, not really knowing what that meant. And, you know, my grades were good. So I got into all the schools and I chose Pratt Institute up in New York.
0: It's Why? Ever,
1: <laughs> Why there? At the time, my art teacher in high school knew that Pratt was a great school. And I listened to her. Pratt had a, a great engineering school in the 1920s. I didn't do my research. We didn't have uh, you know, the internet at the time. Mm-hmm. It was a great art school, great architecture school, had been a great engineering school many years past. But architectural engineering was a program they had just cobbled together. And took me a little while to figure that out. I look, I I have this repeat philosophy in life of no regrets. I was a suburban brat, translated, you know, moved to New York City in the late 70s. That was a pretty amazing time. The life lessons and the exposure to New York City obviously had an influence on me because I didn't leave for 20 years. (laughs) I came back to finish school. But uh, then I lived for New York in in New York for many years. So from Pratt,
0: you went on to University of Maryland.
1: After that, yeah, I mean, in essence, the economy was bad. My parents had enrolled me in this very expensive school, and they ran out of money. I had no money. What I did was I joined the co op program at Pratt as a means of transitioning and figuring out how to what to do next and put a little money in my pocket. And so during my co op. Program I, I uh, transferred to University of Maryland, and at the time it was you know a couple thousand dollars. It was nothing. And, and
0: engineering there is a little more robust than I would assume.
1: Yeah, it's not. It wasn't quite the reputation it has now. But yes, much better than you know, than Pratt. Uh, at least I was challenged at Pratt. There was there was no challenge. The architecture was fantastic at, Pratt. And at Maryland. Uh, it was very hard to be an engineer and study architecture as it is in most schools, actually. Why didn't you become an architect?
0: I mean, why wasn't that um, something that interested well, you? you
1: know, I think it was what Forrest Wilson said. I think he, he hit the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> Very much, you know, I, I also in, uh, you know, in high school, I have two brothers who are professional musicians, right? I would play with them a lot, but then I realized I wasn't that good. I love music, but mm-hmm. I'm not that good. I love architecture, but I'm not that good. <laughs> but I am really good at the science and math side. I mean, that comes natural to me. And, mm-hmm. and so it's it's actually not not to abandon architecture, but I like the challenge of being right there in the middle. And that is a that's kind of a lifelong passion.
0: So then after that you went on and get your master's degree in structural engineering at Cornell after Maryland. Is that was that typically the thing to do or? Was it just you had this really passionate interest in getting into something there? Again, I'd love
1: to say I had a grand plan, but that's not true. When I got out of the undergraduate degree in 1983, there were no jobs. I mean, uh, I, had, I was working part-time with the company, I had, the, the last internship I had had. I had worked at the National Bureau of Standards in the metallurgy, metallurgy division. Then I went to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in Bethesda, working in their structural engineering branch. And then finally, I got tired of government jobs, which was great, and I worked for a small consulting firm in Rockville doing building design. So I really liked that, but I was at an intern level. It wasn't a career path. Uh, they had offered me a job coming out of Maryland, but it was, I won't even tell you how, how low the salary was. But luckily, you know, I, I hung around with some smart people at Maryland and they had seen the, the situation coming. So they had applied to graduate schools and I was kind of running with the pack, so I had applied to all the best schools and I ended up getting, you know, Cornell gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so there was really no option and I was excited about it, excited and scared. Cornell's a a very good school, but they put you through the ringer. so.
0: So you had a structural engineering degree at Maryland. What did Cornell do for you that you didn't have at Maryland, out of curiosity? Sure, well, I always advocate
1: for a master's degree, at least in engineering, because in engineering, what you do, uh, by the time you're done with an undergraduate degree, you kind of got an exposure to everything and expertise in nothing. It's very hard to come out of an undergraduate degree, at least from my perspective, a lot of people do just fine, but I couldn't do it. I needed more. And, and so, you know, I spent two and a half years, I did a master of science. I was actually headed towards a PhD at Cornell and, um, I loved every minute of it, really, really hard, but I learned so much. And I would say the most important thing about Cornell was the teaching and the speaking opportunities, because I was doing research and you have to present your research. You're doing a thesis, you have to defend your thesis. All of that, the master's degree takes a generalist and allows you to become not only a specialist, but an expert in one topic, probably more so than even your professor's. So there's this huge leap in confidence and this huge leap in your ability to communicate over the course of that short period. So I always advocate for the master's degree. And I always say, try and get it early as early as possible. It's very hard to go back to school once you start earning a salary.
0: You know, what's fascinating about that is that it tells me that engineering is a lot more than just, you know... Putting an eye shade on and doing numbers and structures and and mathematics communications is probably at least half, if not three quarters, of your practice. Is that that an accurate statement?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's certainly it's it's at least three quarters to a hundred percent of our problems. Right. (laughs) You know that's that's where the problems arise if something is properly communicated. So it really is. You know we. You know, at Solman and everywhere uh, through my career, I've always said, you know, the most important task is to be an effective listener. Right? Communication starts with listening, and um, so we we truly try and focus on that.
0: So that's one of your mentorship points when you're working with young people. Then, Absolutely. I imagine. Absolutely, fascinating. You had internships, I assume. At, uh, while you're both undergraduate and graduate, what were the more interesting internships that you had that you got some real perspective on? Yeah, every one that I had were
1: incredible. Was incredible in terms of the lesson. So at the Bureau of Standards, I was the uh, I was the smart kid in the in the materials lab. I worked in the metallurgy division, and I was designing laboratory experiments and doing data acquisition, programming, and all this. I was the the whiz kid on the computer, which is quite pathetic com- compared to where I am now. But uh, it was fun because people saw the value in me and they gave me a lot of responsibility. I loved it. I just didn't like the government side. Yeah. Of it. And then I, right. I went to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and they had me doing nothing but um, uh, or they gave me the opportunity to, to rewrite a whole bunch of software, structural analysis software for their in-house use for their t- for the structural engineering branch. Again, I was the computer junkie. (laughs) I realized that I wanted to build something, damn it. (laughs) So my co-op programs would not find anything for me. So I went out on my own and got a co-op job, as I said, at a small firm in Rockville with a structural engineering firm that worked with architects on building. I love that. I mean, the first time I'm designing a footing or designing a column or reinforcing a building I think in my first week, they gave me a small building. It still sits out by the air park in Rockville uh, that I designed. And it was, you know, it was kind of cookie cutter. They'd done it 10 times and I was doing it the 11th time. But mm-hmm. boy, how exciting was that? Those were great, great lessons, each one. You know, I always say that those, the internships and the early jobs are there to, to help you figure out what you don't want to do for the rest of your life, right? And I exactly. knew that what I was doing there was what I wanted to do. But it wasn't the caliber of projects that I wanted. You know, they were doing small industrial structures or little retail renovations, and I wanted mm-hmm. something bigger,
0: you know. bigger challenges. Yep. understood. Yep. So you leave Cornell and you start probably the largest architectural firm in the world, uh, Skidmore, and Owings and Merrill, right? That's right.
1: Yeah, I mean, so you know, it was a it was a complete one hundred and eighty, having no job offers coming out of undergraduate, you know, except right. internship. When I got out of Cornell with a graduate degree in structural engineering from Cornell in the middle of the 80s, uh, it was a different environment. You could not get a rejection letter. I mean, it was impossible. You, you would really have to do something almost illegal. <laughs> and um, I remember, uh, you know, sitting at a payphone in the middle of the city court building in New York City with the yellow pages. <laughs> going through structural engineering firms, right? And um, I, I spent a long weekend there sleeping on the couch of a friend and came back, back up to Cornell. And the following week, I had 11 job offers. Wow. And I will tell you that they were great structural engineering firms, some of the best in the city. But there was only one that was an architectural engineering firm. And that was SOM. And, you know, I, wa- I remember walking into that lobby and I said, this lobby is bigger than my apartment. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful, and it was just very enticing—the world that they lived in—to cut your teeth there. Uh, just an amazing opportunity, so I signed up. It was a real interesting ride. Again, you know, the economy is the repeat, the repeat theme in my life. It's all of ours. But so you know, I joined a structural engineering group. Of uh, I was number six. And over the course of eight years, we grew to 36. Wow. Office of 450 people. And then came the late 80s, early 90s. Yep. And I was suddenly the head of a department of six. And um, that lingered for a while. And um, I loved that. To me, that was an opportunity. I was running, Mm -hmm. you know, a very, very, I was paddling in a boat with a hole in it. But to me that was uh that was fantastic. So I was not only doing the work, but doing management and doing business development. And you know, my, my survival instincts have been very strong
0: because of the economy. How are you surviving in the I mean, all buildings stopped pretty much around the country in about 1989-90. Yep. So uh,
1: what what SOM did was and, and they, you know, they have a huge amount of power. So they they, they managed to get some federal government projects. With, with ah. They also did some, they signed up with the city and they said, look, we've got all this production capability. Let us do, let us help you take advantage of a slow economy and design transitional housing. And so mm-hmm. we had, you know, a dozen or so transitional housing projects. Um, I also learned the value of connections because one of my friends from back in the internships in Bethesda had become a, a senior level person in, in one of the city agencies. And I called and said, look, I need your help. What have you got? And they, they said, well, wait a minute, we've got some work. And uh, that managed to put some food on the table. So, you know, the other thing I tell all the younger folks is that, you know, the, the person you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with in your early years is going to be your colleague when you're the owner of the firm. You know, mm-hmm. so these relationships are lifelong, and that's always true. Um, you don't burn bridges. I mean, some bridges have to be burnt, I guess, but, you know, make friends and keep friends. <laughs>
0: well, the only way you're growing, in my experience in this industry, is to because it's just too small. It's not big enough to, to burn bridges and still be successful, in my opinion, in my experience, either. Okay. Such a small business. <laughs> you see it almost every day. Yeah. Coincidence, you know... You're only a thir- three people away from just about everybody in the industry, more or less. Very true. So, so, so to that point, I mean, when I was running the the structural
1: group or what was left of it, I got some real great mentorship and support from influential people. So I worked directly with David Childs and Marilyn Taylor, both who would come out of the DC office and were really sure. running at that time SOM. The power shift had gone from Chicago to New York and so very very influential people, and you know I know both of them, and they've been fantastic supporters of mine. They knew, they knew just enough about me to know I was quirky and passionate. So that's all <laughs> they needed from me. It, it was it was a great experience. It really was. And uh, you know eventually, within Skidmore, there's always a lot of competition amongst partners. You know there were half of the partners at least that wanted no part of engineering, and I think the economy was such that they couldn't hire engineers when they were still firing architects. At that time, uh, Charlie Thornton, who I had known for several years, was kind of pulling on my coattails, and so he pulled me over to Thornton Tomasetti, and it did a couple things, I think, for him. Number one, it got rid of the structural group at at SOM, and then almost immediately, we got a very large project with SOM. um, And I was back in their office, but as a consultant. (laughs)
0: Interesting. So tell me about Thornton Tomasetti. What, what, what are they? And I assume they're an engineering firm?
1: Yes. Uh, they came from a firm, ironically, Lev Zetlin Associates, which was uh, one of the firms. Lev Zetlin was one of those uh, great creative individuals that I'd read about in my books that were given to me by Forrest Wilson. So here I was joining the firm that I had read about all those years ago by, and, and being hired by the, the, the person that's now running it, Charlie Horn. Charlie is one of the most ambitious individuals in the structural engineering industry. Super smart. He's a PhD, but he's also, you know, he's got business savvy that that literally evolved out of the streets of Manhattan. These are some tough chops he's got. And it's at his roots? He's a yeah.
0: native yeah. New Yorker? Native yeah.
1: New Yorker. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. creative, very passionate. He's going to conquer the world, and he almost has. He saw, I think, in me, the passion and ambition as well, and saw that that was... Uh, Something that he would like to have, and so I worked with them uh, just around two years. I mean, I, I they had just won the competition to to design the world's tallest buildings, the twin towers in Kuala Lumpur. You know, and I walked in and I said, "Like, I think you know that this is a big deal, but I don't think you know how big this is." You know, Thornton Tomasetti is going to become, and he did know, but but he was happy to hear it. I think my ambition was perceived by others in the company as competition. Uh, they didn't truly really understand how the collaborative side of me. And so very quickly, it became a little bit too political for me. So even though I had a great run and did a lot of great work and, and really enjoyed the work with, with great architects, I finally ended up leaving. There was another firm, an AE firm in New York that was looking for new leadership. And uh, this was HLW International, not an SOM, but they do, uh, in their niche, they're really very strong. They've always been the firm that does, I call it architecture and supportive technology. So in the 20s, they did all the phone company buildings, including the headquarters buildings, which were beautiful. And, and then, you know, in the, in the mid-century, they did a lot of R&D facilities. They did the original Bureau of Standards. And then when I was there, we were doing radio and television. We did almost a million square feet per box out in their studios in L.A., um, a lot of pharmaceutical and then a lot of overseas work. We had projects. I had towers in, in China and we had projects in Saudi. Uh, we had projects in Amman, Jordan, just work all over the all over the world.
0: So their practice was more than just civil and, and, and structural. They probably had an electrical group that was pretty strong, too, I imagine. With they had everything. The yeah. technical stuff
1: yeah yeah specialists in media media right. organizations. they also had they offered strategic planning. Uh, they were quite an innovative group, uh, very much uh, a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. They also had a design build group that was very profitable. They didn't have kind of the big name out there and I think they're you know always trying to bring in more design. I think they've gotten smaller since I was there. So I was there and in a way it was kind of the job of my dreams you know i was a partner i came in as a partner of the firm and i had responsibilities beyond just structural engineering i was also uh, you know participating in the management of the full engineering disciplines and sustainability and such and i had uh, a lot of client uh, interaction which was fantastic i think the turning point there though was that both uh, at a personal level both me and my wife who as you now know grew up outside of dc we we found ourselves sort of at the peak of our careers, but living like paupers on the island of Manhattan, <laughs> you know, trying to trying to raise a young daughter who was you know at the time three, and just wondering how that was going to work, and being uh, you know agonizing over the fact that she really didn't know her grandparents, you know, and they were they were all down here, and so that was haunting us, and so we decided to start thinking about this seriously. I was teaching at Columbia University at the time, and one of the uh, one of the other teachers there was Bob Silman. And I had heard through some of the folks in my office that he was he had just tried to buy a practice in D.C. and it went south, and he was interested in D.C. So all it took was that, and I called him up and I told him who I was. He said, "I know who you are," and uh, we had lunch scheduled a lunch. It took us five minutes to realize this was going to happen, and couldn't couldn't have been more natural or, or uh, you know, meant to be, so to speak.
0: Had you known him before, he, you know, you
1: and he taught together at, at Columbia? I, I had met him, but, you know, more I knew him by reputation and, and as a competitor. I'm a little bit off the tracks in the engineering world. I, in the 80s, when nobody wanted to hear about it, I was a huge advocate for, you know, sustainability and green design. Really? Uh, and uh, he was, too, in the world of structural engineering. He was the only other one in Manhattan that was really pushing it. I mean, he was way far ahead of me, but he was organizing interdisciplinary teams. And, you know, he, he worked through with government agencies and basically wrote the one of the model documents that would ultimately be used to design the lead system. So Bob Silman was, you know, he was doing things for the right reason before anybody thought it was right. And so I knew him as in that way. But I also knew that when I was competing for a job, if he was on it, you couldn't shake him. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> loved Bob. <laughs> there was something magic about uh, about this guy. And so when, when I met him, I started to realize what it was. He's a wonderful man. But uh, I think what people realize is, I said it before, an incredible listener, right? He listens very well. And then he acts on behalf of his clients. You know, he might have opinions. He's there. Some of the clients called him the trusted lieutenant, right? It's like once he's in, you're in good shape. You've got Bob on the job, right? He's he's out there and he's working for you. And that's a great business model right there.
0: How would you compare him with this the other fellow you said was really iconic, Charlie Thornton? How would you compare oh, the two guys? Very, very different personalities. Look, I don't
1: want to say anything that would offend either of them. Bob is no longer around. Uh, Charlie is. Charlie is driven, He uh, really wanted to build the next great thing, and he has. He has. He chose the future leaders that have done a phenomenal job. I always say they're the best, but then I also follow it by saying we're not bad either. Thorn Thomas and is a dominant firm in our industry, very strong technically, and they're growth-focused. We're not so growth-focused. We're a little more quirky. Almost everything we do at Sulman is… I would say, counterintuitive to most structural engineers. So our philosophies are different. The way we work is different. It may not look very different on the surface, but it, it is fundamentally different.
0: So that gets into my next question. You know, what sets Silman apart from other firms that you've worked in? How do you describe quirkiness to somebody who doesn't, who's not familiar with the industry well, per se? There's kind of the
1: inside and the outside. So on the inside, we have a you know uh, a, the old adage which is both which is truly almost annoying to hear is that we do believe that if you find joy the money will follow so if we're not enjoying and finding joy in our work it's not going to be profitable that's fundamental now any accountant is going to be annoyed by that, <laughs>
0: that
1: but but it is true and I think you know it's true. Everybody knows it's true. If you lose joy, your operation is going to go south. So we very much focus on doing things that we, that we find joy in. Now, I, I add the caveat, joy doesn't have to be every day of the week. <laughs> no, of course <laughs> it's, it's part of your week. So uh, I think that's important. But also, the other thing that's counterintuitive internally is we focus on career development as the basis of our organization. So we, uh, engineers love to optimize, right? Um, they will optimize anything and everything. <laughs> that's not what we do. And they optimize people. So what happens is you get these verticals. You get a group that's focused on forensics, a group that's focused on envelopes, a group that's focused on, you know, new parking structures or new towers or this or that. And you put these young folks in there and they get really, really good at something in a short period of time, and then they realize at some point, they don't know anything about what's outside of their world. So we don't believe that that's the business model that's gonna carry us forward. The world is changing too much. So much of our work is getting commoditized and it should be commoditized. And so we we sell gray matter. So we're trying to train and build a functioning organization that has thinkers that are are well I call it the slow burn they're going to learn an awful lot about many different things so they will not become an expert in one thing that quickly they will at some point everybody finds their kind of niche but, sure. but we don't create these verticals and it's funny because i you know I, i've seen press in the last week i think you know some of the the great tech leaders are 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 saying no silos well, that's us. We've been saying this for decades. We don't build silos. We don't do verticals. So we we have this kind of pool of well-versed engineers that are trained to think. And then we have specialists and we put together teams related to the project. And the project might be team because of expertise. It might be team because of relationships with clients or geographic location. But that's that's the way we we customize everything. I do make the joke all the time. I poke fun at ourselves, I'll say, if you never do the same thing twice, you never make any money. So, it's, <laughs> not, it's not as profitable, right? I will admit that. I think that the other engineering firms will make better profit in the short term, but I don't believe it's a long-term strategy.
0: Well, I think you don't grow organically well, unless you're multidisciplinary, in my opinion, with almost anything in life, to some extent. Um, I'm sure it's with a firm as well, but the other aspect, the efficiency of things, it can take longer to get something done because, you know, you may not have it quite ticking on all cylinders all the time, per se, possibly.
1: So that's the inside. So from the outside, you know, what makes Solomon different? I would say the same. It's very much the same argument, but as it relates to design in general. We're a firm that has, you know, arrived on the stage because we created our own markets. Bob Silman very much in the early days of preservation, took on projects that other people didn't want and made something really exciting out of it. The sustainability, he, you know, he was a, it was an uphill battle to get people to listen, and now it's commonplace. Not because of him alone, but he was very much at the sort of bleeding edge of these of these movements, and we not only believe, we know that that's the future of our industry. It's continuously evolving, evolving in what way? You can't map it out. Everything is, this may sound a little funny, but everything is an ecosystem, right? The inputs are coming from a variety of places, many of which you don't know, and they're all moving in the fourth dimension. They are evolving with time. So what does that mean to us? We need thinkers at the table. We need people that are looking at not their narrow discipline, but they are looking to learn about what's happening around them. They're aware of or what's around them, and they're they're trying to take it all in. And because you know, where does design come from? Great design, in my opinion, rarely comes from inside an individual. It comes from ideas that are inside that got expressed outside, and that's when the fun starts. That's when the, the the wrestling match begins. How do these different experts, with intimate knowledge of certain subject matter, how do they take these challenges and kind of uh, consolidate them into a solution? And so, if you have these narrow, it happens all the time. We see it with residential towers. Well, this other engineer said no. <laughs> well, we don't say no. What we do is we explain why and what we might suggest doing. And there's more than semantics to that. We're going to start a dialogue. We're going to demand that the person on the other side of the table is listening as well. And so that's where, in my opinion, that's where great design comes from. And that's why people love Bob. And that's why people like collaborating with us and firms like us. I may have mentioned this, but we we were given the honor this last year by the American Institute of Architects we were acknowledged with a, what they call the Collaboration Achievement Award. And they gave it to Sillman, so to myself, Joe Tortorella, and Nat Oppenheimer, my, my two senior partners, cohorts, for taking Bob Sillman's legacy and continuing it at a larger scale. So we've been awarded this Collaboration Achievement Award. How is that measured? I don't know how it's measured. It's, it's given to various uh, entities in the industry, both clients, consultants and architects, but there's a, you know, there's a whole write up. If you, if you get an email from me, you'll see a little link under my signature.
0: Sure. Way. But, you know, I mean, obviously it may be more aesthetic or artistic as opposed to uh, mathematical
2: that measurement.
1: No, no, I would, I would argue quite the opposite. So we Really?
2: Find,
1: yeah, no. So we find collaboration and design, design can be entirely non-visible or non-visual. A design can achieve any number of objectives, and some of them could be as simple as a a solution to constructability, a solution to procurement. There are different ways that we design that help our clients in different ways. All of those challenges we find equally interesting. Of course, we love, you know, Bob Solomon did a talk at Cooper Union about um, heroic design. Right? Because we do we do get, we're blessed with the opportunity to work on some notable new buildings and a lot of notable historic buildings. But that's, you know, a small portion of what we do. So much of what we do is in that second category which you were just kind of touching on. It's not visible. It's because it was well designed that it got built well. Or it's because it was well thought out that the risk during construction, the risk of cost and schedule overruns was minimized. So, there are a whole bunch of things that we do during the design process that require creativity and collaboration. So there's a lot more to it than, than just you know, the, the poster child
0: project. <laughs> Interesting. With the recent thrust you know, interest in ESG, and you kind of alluded to it with the environmental side uh, in, the, in the workplace and in building envelopes, has it had any impact on your design work and your business operations and or? business operations
1: well we we don't use the acronym SG, but all of these topics we touch on all the time and we have as i said this has kind of been part of our our lifeblood for for a long time i often joke that we think too much <laughs> <laughs> so we we do understand again in the in the larger picture what our contribution is to the industry and to the world i often say that at solman you know we understand that we have sort of a a disproportionate impact on the environment because of the work that we do. And I would say in general, and as designers, we do. And so we have certainly the opportunity and probably the responsibility to understand that. And so, you know, we've been doing that from an environmental perspective for some time. There's a lot of focus on embodied carbon, you know, greenhouse gas sort of accounting, if you will. And our industry uh, has a, a leadership group They call it SE 2050, which we're active card-carrying members of, but we also have our own internal resources where we're trying to really just sort of do an accounting of the environmental impact of buildings as they're being designed. So we are doing this, I would say, with our owner clients. And if they're not interested, we will at least try and educate. Many people just don't know that there are decisions that are being made that might have an environmental impact. We can't tell an owner how to spend their money,
0: but we can tell them. We can educate them as to how their options are. Give me an example of things that you're doing innovatively in that in that space that people might be interested in hearing about. Yeah, well, we can talk generically
1: about uh, structural system selection. Right, mm-hmm. every region will have dominant trades and dominant sub subconsult- uh, subcontractors and they will be resistant to change. And so one of the things that we are promoting is the, I'll call it optimization, the optimization of uh, the use of cement, which is one of the highest embodied, embodied carbon materials on the planet. So trying to very carefully use that material, work with the subs in the local regions to find ways to minimize its use. And uh, in some cases, they're starting to talk about carbon capture, where so sort of embodying or embedding carbon in a in a in a long-term capture type of environment into the into the cement of the building. Those are fledged. That's a fledgling technology, but educating people about that use. But also at a system level, I'll talk about. There's an affordable housing project we're looking at right now, where the owner is very interested in in mass timber. That's a big topic, right? It's a, sort of the sex appeal of mass timber is a little bit off the charts and the industry hasn't caught up with it in the reality of building with it. hasn't quite caught up, but, but it's exciting. So we're looking at various mass timber schemes. We're looking at various other proprietary systems that are very economical for, for this kind of, uh, housing, uh, prototy- the prototypical building, and then looking at conventional stick on podium type construction and looking at those both from cost constructability performance, because you've got noise, you know, noise transmission, you've got a lot of other performance kind of criteria you can look at, but then also where does it, where does it register on the carbon scale? So bringing that to the table early on so that we both participate in and educate clients. Uh, That's one example. You know, we get other, other clients who are, you know part of their mission is highly driven by sustainability so we did at harvard we did the the um, house of zero it's a net zero home as a prototypical building so we get you know these kinds of projects as well where the cost benefit doesn't play out in today's economy but it's it's a mission driven facility and and we get a lot of that and and you know there's value to driving these to pushing these agenda, especially when it's pushing it in the marketplace, so it becomes more viable early. Many times, you just need the early adopters to jumpstart a, a change in the industry. So we're,
0: we're there's, a building, there's a building in Washington, D.C. that I took my ULI mentor group through mm-hmm. called the American Geophysical Union Building. Fantastic. Which is right. on Florida Avenue. It's and more. it claims to be a net zero, if not net positive energy building, potentially. Yeah. Have you? Are you familiar with the building? I am. I haven't had the tour yet, but
1: I know. I know all the design team. Uh, we did not do the structural engineering on it, but that's okay.
0: Mm-hmm. So, are there other buildings that you're working on of that nature around the country? Just out of curiosity. I would say more low key
1: than that. That is truly a demonstration project. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these start out with high aspirations, but uh, you know, it's. I used to say this to GSA. GSA used to establish a budget five years before they established the lead rating criteria. And they didn't realize that there are first costs associated with some of these good long-term decisions. So I, I feel that we're still falling, in, falling into the bad habits of setting the bar a little bit higher than the budget affords and then having to lose these aspirations early on. And it's it's unfortunate because when that does happen, people get complacent. I, no, I don't have any right now that I could talk about that are kind of uh, bleeding-edge sustainability. in sure. their mission. There are lots of them in their aspiration, but I'm not sure that it's mission-driven.
0: Well, I've been reading about some interesting materials that are being thought about and also this three D 3D, 3D printing activity, which yeah. is kind of an interesting concept. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that a... 10-story office building in downtown Washington could be printed, but it, is that physically possible? I'm
1: the world's greatest skeptic on these things, but at the same time, the technology <laughs> is getting fantastic. So we are looking at, where we're working a group up in New York. You know, a lot, of the a lot of the 3D printing is driven by people who are trying to do something very cool, right? But sometimes I don't think that serves the purpose. We actually found an opportunity that we're exploring in New York of using 3D printing to reconstruct some early cast iron or wrought iron columns on some canopies that were done, you know, in the 1880s in the iron mills of, uh, of that period. And and I, I thought that's, that's a great application. Nobody's looking at that yet. And so we are looking at that. We do a lot of work with sculptors, uh, working on sculptures and and very interesting you know unusual materials and unusual forms and maintaining both the, the the obviously the safety and stability and and performance of these atypical structures and that includes some 3d printed structures a lot, a lot of kind of laser guided controls in manufacturing and such and, and so we we are always kind of trying to push the bleeding edge of these technologies we're also in North America, uh, we do a lot of work with uh, Lafarge, which is one of the world's top cement manufacturers, and they they are pushing the technology forward on uh, what's called UHPC, ultra high performance concrete. And we're one of the engineers that lead that effort in the, in North America right now. So we're what? always trying to keep our finger in these things and keep an open mind. Going back to my father, I remember my father being the the technology driver and the dreamer he used to hand me articles out of this publication maybe you've seen it called science news and this Mm -hmm. would always have these fantastic ideas and he would show me these things when i was in school and i'd dismiss it dad leave me alone you know he'd show me things about using carbon fiber to reinforce concrete and using Mm -hmm. kind of velcro type connections in steel framing all those are here now yeah (laughs) so dad was right and uh We've, we've got a an open ear to these things, but look, we always enter these things with the appropriate caution, because we're talking about life safety.
0: Was well, Isaac Asimov right in some of his thinking, you know, back in science fiction days? So I sent you a, a quote, and I'm not going to read the whole quote. Uh, this is from a fellow named of Chamath, and his last name I cannot pronounce, but he's the founder of social capital, a venture capital firm, and he does say, and I'm just going to take excerpts of the quote, I think that architecture will unfortunately have a lot less value in the future because of climate change. Now, what does that mean? Well, for example, if you look at some of the most progressive countries in the world, Europe on on climate issue, you look and again, start to go back to first principles, where is the carbon, carbon emitted? Where are the green gases emitted? Well, it's overwhelmingly in cities. So then, I'll move on to further. I think in the United States, it's also had some direct implications as well. So, if architecturally we unfortunately have to replace some of the old beautiful stuff with more simple modern stuff, will we have a more utilitarian landscape? So, I want to get your opinion on that. On that comment, he thinks that we have to be much more, I guess, plain and less, you know, architecturally uh, ebullient going forward just to, to meet the needs and the, of the carbon, carbon neutral uh, mandates of the future. What do you think of that? Yeah. So
1: I have two different thoughts, one, or one reaction and then a series of thoughts. But first reaction is I disagree with Chaman in his statement about cities. I believe that the carbon emitted per capita in cities is much lower than outside of cities. Um, I see cities as part of the solution to our problem, and not part of the problem. the, the efficiency of cities is is undeniable. Now, post COVID, I have to rethink this. <laughs> okay, we've got a new wrinkle. Um, I'm not quite sure where that's going, but I, I imagine that you know there's going something will come out of this. We'll swing back and forth a little bit before we find the right balance. I truly believe that cities are very important to sustainability. So I I will disagree on that, on that front. But the other very provocative thing that he kind of implies is that maybe we ought not to be saving all these old buildings, right? Right. I am wholeheartedly in support of that argument. But at the same time, I'm a card-carrying member, you know, of the preservation community. So I I joke that I'm the guy that straps himself around the the, the, uh, cast iron column. Um, (laughs) and, And I do. But I would also offer this, that the preservation community, and I forgive the lingo, but, you know, we, our Bible is the Secretary of Interior Standards for Historic Buildings. It's got a longer title than that. But there is a set of standards by which we live in the preservation world and in the preservation engineering world. Those standards have become gospel. And the standards are not very deep in their, in, in their explanation, and they haven't evolved much. So what we've done is we've become an industry that is stuck on some kind of, I would say, almost overly conservative in cases, interpretation of these standards. And it's created a rift in our industry that is, it's not healthy. And I think that, you know, my generation and the next generation of preservationists and preservation engineers, particularly as the 50-year window is, is engulfing an entire new era of construction. We owe it to ourselves to reinterpret the Secretary of the Interior standards. I've been on this soapbox for a while, both on project specific cases as well as the as well as the industry. We need to let go a little bit because we are right now strapping or chaining ourselves to everything that moves that's over 50 years old and it's getting ridiculous. I believe and I endorse and advocate for a genuine assessment of these buildings. Some of the, and I'll argue the other way as well. It doesn't mean that the, a lot of these buildings have good bones. They may not be thermally efficient. What we need are people like us that have the science behind it to say, what can we do with what's there? But then also what should we do with with what's there? And that's the hard part. The should part is being kind of dictated by old by standards that were, or by mantra that were developed out of standards that are kind of being, I'd, I'd say the interpretation is, is not, has not evolved. And so I, I think it's really important. I love the idea of preservation of modern architecture. I, I mentioned that Bob Silman gave a talk about uh, heroism in or heroic architecture. You know, should we be designing for heroic? Architecture defines our culture, right? There are very, very important buildings that define our give us a sense of place, that give us a, a sense of you know of who we are and, and where we are. Those are very important. The problem is in our schools, in, in our architectural training and in engineering training, we train ourselves to think, oh, well, I have to design one of those every time and design a building. Or, or in preservation, they say, I can't let this building go because it has now crossed that window, that threshold. We need to be a lot more sophisticated
0: in that, in that evaluation. Well, there's form and then there's function, right? So, sometimes you can't put them together. So, for instance, the Lincoln Memorial, that's a building that was built primarily just to be a memorial. It's, it has no real function to it other than being there to remind us of our country and there's a meaning there. Whereas the Smithsonian buildings have function to some extent because they are they are display things in them, maybe you can cite some other examples of properties that are those are more public buildings that are on display basically and not necessarily used for you know the real estate in our use is office, retail you know our thing those are more museum like where people come there for just to appreciate the architecture and the what's inside the buildings, whereas, you know, an office building has a purpose to it beyond just looking at it, in essence. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and, and some of the projects you're working on that kind of have both form and function defined, maybe, interestingly, and, and some trends that are happening right now with some new interesting projects you're working on. Sure.
1: Well, I could use those two as examples, actually, because, uh, and I think I can say these things, they're both of those projects we've been involved in. And I guess I'd like to use them as examples to make the point that form and function are just two variables that are part of the evolution of the building. The needs, the, you know, both the cultural significance of those buildings and their function have to adapt. Over time. And, and so the Lincoln Memorial, if you think about it, nobody thought about Martin Luther King when they built those steps. No. But what do you think about when you think about the Lincoln Memorial? Right? Yeah. yeah. And so that building, as you're you're absolutely right. It's meant to be an object that is to be there and appreciated and admired, a sort of contemplative moment you know, where you've got this incredible view of the national Mall, and you learn about this amazing man that changed the world, right? And so that's what that's all about. Well, over time, Martin Luther King has showed up he did something similar, right? In a very important, in a way that the story needs to be told. So, you know, there, and I think this is public knowledge, there's a project that is taking some underutilized space in the undercroft and turning it, it's literally the building is built on a fake hill, so there's space under And so that space has had a restroom and visitor center there for years, but it's been underutilized. So there's an opportunity there to do something magnificent and really celebrate the Lincoln Memorial and its place in in the world of, of uh, civil rights. And so uh, that's a very important function. Uh, you know, what else is evolving? Security requirements evolve. The need for Rest facilities, right? Visitorship evolves. All of those things have to come into play. So those are function, right? Right. But my point being that, you know, we, we have to get off this idea that a building, a building is designed and there's this line in the time and the, in the calendar under which the building exists and then it just exists from that point forward. Every building evolves. And every single building evolves. And we need to start recognizing that both during the design, but then afterwards. I think too much of it has been uh, not enough thought put into how it might evolve. And then with the retrofits, not enough thought into the sensitivity of the building. You know, too many, too many retrofits have been done in a way that just did not respect the original design intent uh, or did not allow for future evolution.
0: So that's-, that's Well, the, buildings physically deteriorate, That's right. And then in my experience with using the the highest and best use analysis that we did in real estate Mm -hmm. was that there's economic obsolescence, there's physical, you know, physical uh, depreciation, and then economic depreciation. Mm -hmm. So in the case of those buildings, economics don't really matter that much because that's not, they're not business oriented. They're not income producing real estate. So, really, you're looking at physical and economic. So, the economic piece, what you're saying is because the, the buildings have had have changed their purpose over time because of the amount of people that use them or other things, it's, a, it's an interesting evolution. And you say that buildings sit there and they're physically, but they change because they dissolve more or less physically over time because time wears on buildings, right? So... So going over to the Smithsonian
1: Castle, the castle as it sits today, it's sad because it really, they had floors added into it to turn it Mm -hmm. into an office building. You know, it was turned into an office building and these are not great spaces and it it lost all of its, uh, much of its interior character because it just was not treated with respect. And so the current project is the restoration of the historic core, core, which will be the full restoration of the castle. Back to a period of significance. I mean, as these, uh, to my point, even after it was built, it evolved. You know, there was mm-hmm. a fire. There were things that happened. There were, you know, you know, you have to identify if you're going back in time, at what point in time or what points in time do you go to? So from a function or business perspective, that building is going to change its use. It's not going to mm-hmm. be an office. It's going to be more a public assembly uh, museum space. and And so how does that, into the equation but um, the other aspect of that of course is that we learned in the mineral earthquake something that we had known for decades which is that that building has some seismic vulnerabilities and so we um, are trying to address those with sort of some creative solutions and and reduce the long-term risk for that facility into the future and really that building as with Lincoln Memorial I keep saying that it's it's less of a building that we're we're not we are trying to protect the occupants but we're also trying to protect the building it is an artifact itself it represents smithson and his you know his legacy especially in a in a seismic event you know we we don't want to be closed down for 10 years trying to raise enough money to fix it we'd rather we'd rather well look at the washington
0: monument and the washington national cathedral both had major construction issues as a result
1: You know, I I think that we need to look at the building's life as a continuum. It is funny. I wrote a paper back in the 80s that never saw the light of day. And it was about a new aesthetic for sustainability. And uh, you remember the movie Mad Max. It was kind of that in the future, materials will be so scarce that we're going to find beauty in reusing materials and reusing raw materials. And, and incorporating living building systems into our buildings, and it's so it, it it saddens me that I didn't get that out because if you look at our most architects now are designing buildings with large expanses of exposed wood, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, everybody dreams about Corten and and uh, uh, rusty metals, and then we've got green roofs and green walls everywhere. <laughs> so it's yeah. almost we're we're back to Mad Max with the exception of you know
0: oxygen tanks hanging off the side. So are you using, using nature in a lot of your construction now? Aspects of it? I would say aspiring to.
1: That's more on the architectural side, but we do an awful lot of work with green roofs um, mm. you know, and advocate for green roofs. and that, That's one of my uh, areas of interest. Are
0: there any ar- organic building structures that you're using that are actually more or less plant no. roots into the into the soil of the soil? Oh, property. Yeah, that's kind
1: sort of off off the deep end, but yeah, believe me, I've gone there. Uh, <laughs> there. There's some there's some interesting ideas out there that are really more experimental or sculptural, you know, pieces than, than, than realistic. But but uh-huh. if you can imagine, if you do go down that deep end, you can you can imagine with the current simulation capabilities we have, uh, there's
0: a lot you can do with them. So, what's, how has the pandemic had an influence on your business? And obviously, it has business, you know, with your people it has influence, but how has it affected the civil engineering and the construction engineering business, if, if it has? Well, it has. As a firm, we, luckily,
1: as I said, we tend to be proactive in thinking about these things. We had been really wrestling with the fact that the majority of our talent, on the floor, so to speak, of our offices, were you know young folks that didn't have families, a lot a high percentage female, and we were we were bothered by the fact that we weren't diverse enough. Right. So we've got one of the things that came out of that was we really wanted to focus on the work-life balance. And so and part of work-life balance is is creating a, a remote work environment that that really can function. And so we had done that. We had developed policies, we had de- everybody was working off high-end laptops and all of this. We that was already in place and we knew it could work except we hadn't done it. We hadn't really done it. So it was remarkable to see once we did, you know, once the announcement was made we're working from home to see it happen and we really did it without skipping a beat
0: that's Um, great
1: so what i what i love about it nobody loves the pandemic but what i do love about it is you know usually change management is restricted by you know you've got a few early adopters and you have to hope that they hit the ground running and make some friends and you know show a few people a better way and it takes years to get things to happen this happened in a matter of months the entire organization was working remotely and, um, you know, we make, we make a point of a lot of personal time touching. You know, we, we, we have a Monday morning calls. We're all on the phone. We have Friday at the end of the week. We're all on the phone. We, we ping each other and, you know, we, we do a lot of that. And I'm sure most organizations are doing that. But I would say that, you know, that part has been really encouraging. And so I know now that when we go back, whatever that means, that going back is going to have a much higher percentage of remote work. It also means geographic diversity. We were going to have, um, you know, I, I joke that, you know, we had a lot of people that went home to see mom and dad because they just wanted to be near them. And there was no reason not to. And I, I, I kept joking that some people are going to call and say, hey, you know, I kind of like it here. <laughs> <laughs> about not coming back. And I think, you know, to a degree, we want to try and embrace that when it makes sense. And, and
0: consider those those as opportunities. Well, you opened an office in Ann Arbor, you told me. We did. Because of that,
2: yeah. you had somebody who left
0: and wanted to be there. Right.
1: And I've been poising for, you know, these geographic diversification for a long time. And um, I joke that we have an office in New York, Washington, Boston, and Ann Arbor, and tomorrow the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. So, one, one other path I want to go down a little bit is uh, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And how has that had any impact on your industry and, and your company?
1: Yeah, well, I won't say that we're out there coding part of AI, but we uh, we have a really strong commitment to uh, digital design and parametric modeling and such, more so than you know, that sounds like a, a tagline. Um, we have a, a head of digital design and very strong leadership in that regard. And we are looking at creative ways to apply this on every project. So it, the most obvious cases are kind of two ends of the spectrum. How can we model this very interesting form that the architect wants to create? And we do a lot of that. The other one is... How can we do what we do every day a little bit better? So we're using AI and AI tools for both of those and, and finding unique ways to, to kind of uh, move, move that forward. So AI tools are, are showing up in our industry in the form of software and apps on a daily basis. Your head will spin. We find a uh, great value in the tools that are coming out of the industry, as it relates to reality capture, so we work with existing buildings, and so we're taking that information and using it in you know different ways and sometimes novel ways all the time. Processing the data, giving us more, more, more information out of that raw data, and as the sensitivity of the equipment improves, and as the new equipment becomes more data friendly we expect that this is going to be uh, just sort of an open field for innovation. So, um, you know, we've been using laser scanning and, and, you know, 3D printing and all, all of those tools regularly for different types of projects. But we try to create sort of an open dialogue between our digital design leaders and the people that are solving problems every day. As I said before, it's, it's, it's a crossover between disciplines where you're going to find the magic happen. And, and so that's the, that's the dialogue that's happening right
0: now. It, is this improving innovation? Is it improving speed and efficiency? I mean, what, what is the uh, major benefit of AI, in Definitely your opinion? Improving both. Definitely both. improving both. And so we're working
1: both ends, but I, I don't think at some point it's not going to be an either or. It's going to be, it's happening together. And AI may be a little misnomer, but AI routines are being, um, you know, incorporated into an awful lot of the work we do uh, through various software
0: packages we use. Is is this steering away from human involvement in any way? I mean, is it taking, you know, making it more efficient such that you know it's uh, a human, a man, a person's role is less, you know, mechanical? I mean, that's what other, it, certainly in the, in the industrial space sense, that's a major change. Is it also in the design sense as well? Absolutely. And, and there's a place for that.
1: There are others in the industry that are trying to uh, advance the AI kind of in a, in a self-promotion fashion that would mislead clients to believe it's going to solve all their problems. There are certain projects and not certain projects, certain problems, certain aspects of projects that 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 really can't and shouldn't be automated. You need to be well aware of where that line is. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if if they are automated, it's going to stifle creativity. It's going to stifle the the integration of trades. We just have to realize the limits of what we're of what we're programming. And so I think that's very important. It's a self fulfilling prophecy if you kind of. Um, Optimize and, and program your AI within certain boundaries, you're going to miss the big picture. And, and I think that's very, very important. In terms of how do you know that?
0: How do you program, determine I mean, I where, where the line is crossed? That, that's where
1: I, I call it selling gray matter, right? I think that our model will be that we want to use AI, we want to use software to, I, we, we have to use the, the brain to figure out where the commodity line is drawn, right? Mm -hmm. Where this truly has value. And then make sure, because otherwise it'll run rampant and we're going to cross that line. Interesting. I I do believe that the and I use this word commoditization, but we that's going to happen. You know, whether it's by AI or whether it's, you know, overseas entities doing things at a cheaper labor rate that's a reality of our industry and it's a reality of technology and if it's being done accurately and if it's being done efficiently so be it we we don't need to be doing that work that business cycle is left over from the industrial age right mm-hmm. we don't need to have 20 guys sitting there punching calculator and writing no. down the answer on a sheet of paper we don't need that that's you know but as long as it's Being done within the confines of a defined problem that is appropriate to be done that way, that's great. And we want to be the first ones there to do that. So, and we we are doing that. And we've done a lot of innovative things. Um, Some of our competitors are pushing the idea of, um, you know, putting, uh, going, uh, producing shop drawings for all of these projects, including ours. You know, they'll go out and they'll they'll say, well, I'll produce the shop drawings. We produce shop drawings for our projects when it makes sense. So if we find that we can advance the construction or shorten the approval process of the construction trades based on the knowledge that we have control over and confidence in, we will do that. If we, if we have control of the geometry of a building and can help the architect achieve their desired solution, by feedback, uh, feedback loop, kind of, you know, really sharing models in a way that, that allows them creative control and allows us the engineering creative side, we can do that as well. There are, There's a lot, of, a lot of opportunities that the, the, the new digital design world has afforded us. As you know, a new software package comes out every day. There are challenges with compatibility between these software packages. And so you have to be very actively engaged in all of this. To make sure it's being used properly. And so we've made the investment in this and are uh, uh, very excited about it, to be honest. There are some engineers that have done the same thing for 30 years and they're scared to death of that technology. There are other engineers on the other end that are taking that technology and trying to wipe those guys out of a job. And, and we're, we're right in the middle sort of saying, I don't want anybody to lose their job, but let's all get smarter and let's use this in a very smart way.
0: Well, it sounds like you're taking an intelligent approach to what really needs human attention and what can be automated per se. And That's certainly the goal. Okay. So let me shift gears now to a little bit more aesthetic, uh, esoteric line here and go into the article that I referred And listeners, I'm going to have this article as part of our text by a fellow by the name of Paul Graham, and it's called Taste for Makers. And this is a article about taste and how it's looked at in design, and uh, Paul Graham is a a technologist who became a venture capitalist, Y Combinator founder, but he comes at it from a software engineering perspective. and He talks about design, I think, more from an architectural standpoint than than from a uh, software engineering standpoint, I believe. But it's an interesting article, and I and I know that you read it, Kirk. So I'd like to get your interpretation of ta- of taste in design and all the different aspects that Paul talks about in his article.
1: I enjoyed the article tremendously because it, it it rang true. Taste is a very personal thing; it's hard to define it. I would say that I, if if you look, if I look back at my own evolution in the industry, I have to chuckle a little bit because. I was, as I explained, I came to the world of architecture through the technology side, right? The understanding of the laws of physics and such. And I ended up at SOM. Well, SOM is, you know, sort of one of the iconic modernists. Their, their goal in life, their aim was to strip architecture of all of its embellishments and false <laughs> truths. You know, that was the, that was the, the kind of, uh, that's, those are my own words, but that's modernism in a nutshell. Many times they were creating more false truths than eliminating along the way, but that was at least the aspiration. So I have a huge amount of respect for modernism and a great love of buildings that are pure expressions of structure, right? That's my own personal. But I quickly laugh at that because it's such a one-sided view of the world. And I have a lot of fun uh, arguing with my wife about this, who is, she finds anything that's modern distasteful.
0: <laughs> she so, loves for example, let's let's pick a building that most people know about. Let's uh, take uh, IM I. Pei's building of the uh, the, Nat- the Museum of Art downtown, which yeah, is the a National
1: Gallery, which we did National Gallery of Art. in yeah. my life restoring the, the facade of that building. <laughs> you know, she has no no interest whatsoever in that building. If you turn 180 degrees and look at the the, the John Russell Pope building, she's in heaven. She's, now that's a nice building. Okay. So they um, she loves classical architecture. She loves the embellishment. She loves Beaux Arts. I mean, she couldn't be happier than being you know uh, in, in in the streets of, of of Paris. Whereas I love the expression of structure. It's just something that's innate to me. But I realize that other people don't necessarily see it, first of all, or like it at all. <laughs> so I, I, I'm very aware of this. I've evolved. And and I think what I would say is that I recognize that taste is very personal, but it is also very contextual. You could have a, a traditional building that would be absolutely beautiful, you know, down on the mall, and you put it in suburban Maryland, and it would just look like an eyesore. <laughs> right? Think about it. And so the context is so important. And I don't just mean physically, I mean socially, right? Because a building architecture is a statement of, uh, you know, of of where you are. It's also a statement of when it was built. And, you know, all of those things, I think, are very, very important. Honestly, that's what I love about where we are right now. Our our sort of sweet spot in the world of, of design is when there's some building, and it doesn't have to be historic, but it's an existing building, in a setting that we need to add on to and renovate. That is the best challenge because there's only, you'll never solve that problem twice because you've got the context, you've got the building, you've got the needs of the program. You'll never solve that problem twice. And, and I'll tell you, that's 90% of the problems these days. We've got to no a point where, yeah, there are new buildings being built you know, all over the place and there are gonna be a place for optimizing those new buildings, particularly in the affordable housing world. Which uh, you know, I'm excited by that challenge too. But I love the challenge that these that the evolution of buildings offers, and uh, well, he, that's that it, would be my my answer to this taste discussion.
0: In I, the article, he goes through probably about fifteen or twenty principles that he suggests that good taste. One that you just talked about, I think, refers to good design. Let's see here comes in chunks. And I don't know what he really is getting to there, but I thought it was kind of an interesting perspective. He said, it's often strange, happens in chunks. Good design is daring. It can be funny. It can be symmetrical. It can look easy, and yet it's hard. So there's a lot of contradictory terms there too.
1: Exactly. You know, there's a great quote. I think it's Mark Twain. I'm sure you (laughs) And I love it. It's so true for what we do as well. He said, at the end of a, a letter he wrote, he said, I would have written a much shorter letter if I had a lot more time.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: And, and exactly. exactly how, you know, the most beautiful buildings are kind of immediately evident. You know, their uh, you know, partie, as the architects call it, is there. You see it, you get it, you feel it. But boy, is that hard to do, you know?
0: <laughs> sure. It, it really is. So as, as a kid, I, built, uh, I was given at, um, at Christmas mm-hmm. a model, you know, scale model of the White House in, you know, a thousand pieces.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: <laughs> I had to assemble columns together and all these things. It, was, um, it took me almost six months to build that thing. I learned quickly that structure was not one of my strengths. So uh, in that exercise, but it, it gives you perspective on the complexity of even in a, in a scale model of uh, you know a model with that many pieces to it, how complicated building is, and how many different pieces there are. And that was just a model that had nothing to do with the other systems in the building, just the you know the structure itself per se. So
1: yeah, I mean the uh, the other part of this taste is the non the non visible, you know. I mean don't don't forget we experience buildings, right? You feel a building. You you feel the way the sunlight bounces around within the space. You hear there's an audible character of buildings. All of there's a smell. Buildings. There's a smell to buildings too. Absolutely. So you mentioned the White House, and I remember Bill McDonough, you know, sort of celebrated early uh, sustainability guru, did the greening of the White House, and I remember the story about in the stairwell some of the old uh, registers, air grills had been covered up with stained glass, little plexiglass stained glass, and you know they were they were doing the investigation of the building. And they said, well, that's that's kind of silly. Let's take those out of there. And they said as they took them out, the building started breathing. Really? The original natural ventilation system, which had basically been, you know, stifled by all of the years of modifications, started coming back to life. The natural ventilation and the in the you know the, the, the heat effect was was taking over and the building was breathing again. And so there is uh, you know, I challenge the word I understand what he means by taste but you know my wife will be more focused on the lighting inside the character of the lighting not like what it looks like in an image but the character of the lighting how does the light play in the space all of those things are so important and you know again look I don't sound like a structural engineer and there's a reason for that that's kind of what we do I, I always say you know back to Silman I always say that we tend to have a, a perspective on the project that we know more about what the others on the design team and on the client side are thinking about or worried about and, and what we need them to know than a lot of our competitors. We're thinking broadly and sort of very excited about the way the the, the larger picture of the project as well. I, I think all of that plays into this idea of taste. It's Taste implies visual, even though it's a case doesn't imply visual, but that's what he was implying, I think, in his statement. But sure.
0: It's the full experience. It's all right. There's a modern thing that when I was a child, I didn't really hear about, or even early in the business, Mm -hmm. was a sense of place. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a part of it as well. So when you're in a even an outdoor place place like being on the mall in Washington, that has a sense of place. You know you're in a unique place there. And I think that has an ambiance to it that has an impact on taste, I think. Absolutely. It's interesting. So let me uh, move into more uh, practical things here. (laughs) Looking at your business, how do you look at new opportunities? Because of your reputation, do developers seek you out for projects? I mean, are you known for doing things a certain way and do people look to you to hire you?
1: I would say on a good day that uh, work does come to us, but most days we have to sell ourselves a little bit. And, you know, I I've talked enough about my background to know that, you know, I, I kind of come from the school of hard knocks. I've been through several recessions and I know how important it is to, to keep food on the table. So I've, I've, my own style is to actively make sure that we're developing business as we move along we, you know, a happy client is the best new client, right? They're, if they keep bringing you work, that's the best. I, but I'm also an advocate for business development and marketing, so to speak. It's funny, in our industry, in the engineering industry, you know, it was it was actually through the 60s, it was considered unethical for professional engineers to market. It was actually illegal. Really? Uh, it was a commodity. It was, you know, back to that industrial industrial age kind of, approach to the world it was unethical you weren't supposed to do it because the folks that were doing it were going around you know knocking down the fee of the next guy and that was just not good but well, i think race to the bottom on. instead of the race to the top is what you're saying exactly. and there's still a little bit of that going on and sadly but uh probably in every industry but i think you know i i'm a great believer that we have something to offer and so if you don't go out and tell the world it's not getting out, you know, sure. why, you know, I, I also believe that we need to grow as a firm and why, for the simple reason that, you know, we hire these incredible people. We're very, very lucky that we are able to attract top talent and our top talent won't be necessarily the same top talent that our competitors are looking for you know, we're looking for people that are very excited about architecture. Almost everybody that works at Silliman at one point thought, like I did, they were going to be an architect. And they realized that they were actually an engineer, right? So there's that, there's that spirit. There's a, they, they, they really love architecture. And then they also, um, we also do a lot of difficult projects. And some people just want to be told what to do
0: and sit down and do it. We don't, we don't have that opportunity. So, you, you look for people that are somewhat independent thinking yep. a little bit, but also are very open-minded and are willing to, you know, look at things multidisciplinarily as opposed to, okay, I'm a pure structure guy and that's what I want to do and this is it, you know. Exactly. Yeah, there are, there are places for folks like that. So, you have a lens to, when you hire him. You look. what do you look for in a budding engineer? What characteristics do you want to find from somebody other than the multidisciplinary piece we talked about?
1: I, th- I think kind of what I just said, it's really that drive and the passion for design. Uh, yeah. It's not easy what we do. It really isn't. And it's not easy. You know, I, 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 I kind of joke when, when we're interviewing people, I joke about it and I say, you know, it's a bit of a, Engineering is a bit of a blessing and a curse. We really like what we do, but you know, it's like we can't really do anything else. If you can do something else, you probably ought to, right? There are better ways to make a living. <laughs> but we're kind of those of us that fall for this, are
0: kind of trapped, and it's a good thing, but you know, we're kind of trapped. It's funny you say that because there are very few engineers that I know that have gotten into real estate development that actually have become developers that had a purely engineering background. I mean, they may have been trained as an engineer in college, but quickly realized that they were more business people than people that were willing to design all day and do structure, which is interesting. So that's, uh, you talked a little bit about how you manage through real estate cycles, and I assume that you have a way of adjusting your firm accordingly if you need to, as far as size. So in the go-go days, you're going to grow. And if things get tough, like right now, you're probably looking at s- situations and saying, mm. although it's interesting, what I've seen in construction is it hasn't slowed down too much during well, the pandemic.
1: Well, you're definitely DC based then. because I think, uh, you know, nationwide, I think there's been areas of slowdown. Have they? Um, we, we have a, reputation in the industry that you know, we're kind of, you know, whole, which is that we have never let people go in a recession. And the reason being we, first of all, the way we structure compensation allows for a little bit of a pressure relief valve. We compensate very well and we allow but we allow it to adjust. And then we have a huge diversity of work. You know, again I'll make that quote that it's a it's a very, very bad business model because we just don't have those verticals. You know, when, when your skills are sharp and you've got a team that's doing the, you know, running on top at the top of their game, they're going to make a lot of money when the markets are good. But then you hit a brick wall. Yep. And so the diversity, the way we've trained people helps us tremendously in these months.
0: So you can pivot quickly.
1: We we pivot quickly, but we also have a just a huge range of, we do a lot of work on, um, on a term contract basis, we, you know, when a client comes to us, even when we're very busy with something that other engineers wouldn't want to do, we do it. If it's important to our client, it's important to us. And so, so uh, clients.
0: so looking back at your career, Kirk, what are your biggest wins, losses, and perhaps most surprising events that happened to you in your career? I think if you look at the firm, You know, some of our early
1: wins were phenomenal. Uh, Bob Sillman had the chance to work on uh, several Frank Frank Lloyd Wright buildings and became very well known for that work, including Falling Water and uh, the Guggenheim Museum in New York, Wingspread Racing. And uh, so those were just fantastic, right? And then Restoration Adaptive Reuse of Ellis Island, uh, in New York City, as the Museum of Immigration. That was a, a big feather in our cap. And then that kind of translated into other historic buildings. So we've worked on many state capitals. Uh, just opened Wyoming. We're working in New Jersey, New Jersey State Capitol, New York State Capitol, Virginia, you know, the US Capitol. We've, we've done a lot of work on Capitol buildings, very notable, iconic public buildings. So the, the downside of all of that was that we were very much getting a reputation as preservation engineers, right? Mm-hmm. It's great if you want to try and get some work in preservation. And, and that's why I came to DC, right, to really start doing preservation. It all worked out quite well. But what, one big surprise was as we were approaching our 50th anniversary, of course, we always say half of our work is existing buildings, the other half is new. We just don't uh, we're, as a small firm, we don't kind of celebrate things as much as we should. Well, coming up to the 50th anniversary, it dawned on us, this is hilarious that so we didn't even realize it, that we had three major new museums coming out, that opening in the two years before our 50th anniversary. So it was the, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., the Whitney Museum with, by Renzo Piano in New York, and then the Fogg Museum, the Harvard Art Museum. So these three spectacular major new cultural facilities were in our portfolio right on our 50th anniversary. Wow. So that was a, a little bit of magic and nobody saw it coming and we didn't even see that it had happened until we took the time to write down <laughs> our history for 50 years. So that was that was a sort of a beautiful moment. You know, more recently, uh, I'll say that we're involved in, you know, some of the most exciting things happening in D.C. You know, we were awarded the restoration of the historic core of the Smithsonian, the South Campus with the Arts and Industries Building and the the Capitol, I mean, the, uh, the castle. We were also called to uh, restore the Michigan Central Station Building mm-hmm. up in Detroit, which is really right. great. It had particular meaning for us because I've heard it referred to in historic documents is the Ellis Island of the Midwest, which is really neat because Ellis Island had these great vaulted Bostovino tile vault ceilings. And and so does Michigan Central Station. That'll be one of the I,
0: Yeah, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Okay. I'm a native Detroiter. Sure. And uh, as a child, my dad used to go to New York uh, for business. And he did not like to fly. He was not he did not like flying. He was, he had fear of, of, you know, he was a, what did they call it to fear of heights, acrophobia. So he took a train. And so my, my mom and I would, and my brother would ride down and drop him off at the train station. Wow. And we'd also go down and pick him up. So I was down there quite a bit as a kid, cause it was New York central back then was the train lines before Amtrak. And we'd go and, and he'd ride a train and he'd go through Canada. From there, because they crossed the into uh, Windsor, Ontario, and then through Canada, through Toronto, and then cross, you know, at, near Niagara Falls, and back into New York State to go into New York City. That's so awesome. I saw that, and then I went to school in Ann Arbor, and my my mom would drop me off, and I'd take a train from there to Ann Arbor. Oh. At that time, it was Amtrak, back in uh, the 1970s. So I know that building quite well, and it's it was. I always was impressed. The only building quite like it, well, Union Station here in Washington is pretty close. Mm-hmm. And the one in Chicago, uh, the Union Station in Chicago, that's another structure that's similar. Grand Central, I think, is the is the is the granddaddy of all of them though, of train stations that I can that I know of. Maybe there's one another one in the world that's bigger than that one, but <laughs> anyway, Land
1: Central, Michigan Central Station was designed by the same team of architects that did the New York Grand Central Station. Really interesting. So I'm looking forward to uh, opening it and, and hosting you in Detroit, and uh, go walking down Memory Lane with you. That
0: would be. I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it because I understand Ford Motor is trying to do their automation. Their what do they call it? Their automation set up there. And I think they're behind most of that renovation, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Well,
1: so it's interesting, one story about that building. I've referenced the Secretary of Interior Standards for Historic Preservation. And and in, in that world, we, we have different categories of kind of treatment, restoration, rehabilitation, preservation, and reconstruction. And, and I joke about the Michigan Central Station because it was left for dead. I mean, it was literally right over 20 years and I say this is a new category it's called resuscitation
0: (laughs) Resuscitation. (laughs) well it's it's like you know for instance going to Egypt and going inside the tombs there after what hundreds of years where they people never went in to see what was there so it's interesting so let me shift uh, again talk a little bit about your life philosophy Business, family, and giving back to the community. What's your thought on that, Kirk? Well, I think uh, you know I have a lot to share, and I have little time. But
1: (laughs) I do believe that my business is part of my life, and uh, it's the same with my wife. She's a writer. We share a lot. We, you know, it's kind of we we don't we don't we don't necessarily leave work at the door when we walk in or uh, leave the room at these days. I try to give back as much as I can, mainly through teaching and mentoring. And what what I, you know, what I really admire about Bob Sillman was, sounds very simple, but his kindness. You know, he was a very kind and giving man, and he left, he just left goodwill in his wake. And so a lot of what we are trying to do at Sillman is that. So I've always taught, you know, at, at university. And in a, in a lot of ways, that's part of what I give back. I taught, obviously, as a teaching assistant at Cornell, but then I was a adjunct professor at Columbia and then also at Hopkins, both in architecture and engineering schools. And then I'll always look for opportunities to gauge, engage in, in the sort of local community through high schools. A lot of high schools have engineering and architecture programs now. Mm-hmm. We try and do that. We get involved in the Habitat for Humanities and, and these sorts of things. So I'm a great advocate for making sure that you know what we're doing professionally, if it has value to the community, getting out and sharing it. And so I would say I'm in on those opportunities. I'm more of an advocate and cheerleader because you know, I've got 40 40 folks in the office and mm-hmm. 170 firm wide. So we're very much involved in advocating for that kind of thing.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say you like to teach. And uh, I i wanted to ask you, um, is creativity something you can teach or is it innate? I mean, is this something that just you're bored with or is this something that, you know, you can learn?
1: So I think that there's a little bit of both. But, I, you know, I, I often when I teach, I often I love to discuss the philosophy of design because that word is is uh, it's not well debated, and that word is used in two totally different contexts in the world of engineering and architecture. And for most people, it creates a rift and, and, you know, design in the engineering world means that you're given a set of parameters and a set of equations, the laws of physics, right? and you are to determine what the answer is. And there's a specific answer. It's the size of a piece of steel or it's the depth of a pudding, or it's, a, or it's the, you know, the, the thermal energy that's coming out of an exterior wall, um, there's an answer. In the world of architecture, you're given a set of parameters and probably a dozen or more criteria at minimum. You know, cost, constructability, aesthetics, you know, performance in, in any yeah. number of ways. Yeah. There's not an answer. There are only solutions and you actually can't be wrong, and you can't be right. And I, an, engineer, an engineer's head is just going to spin out of control, right? So, so I, the problem, and it, it, it's, very, it's quite sad, actually. There are a lot of engineers, and I would say they don't exist in our firm because I weed them out at the door. There are a lot of engineers that just hate architects because they're these annoying people that just can't make up their mind, and they keep changing things at the last minute. And then there are so many engineers that know they've been listening to the debate they've been understanding what the architect is trying to solve, and when they come back and they change something, we may not be happy about it, but if we understand the bigger picture, we understand where it's going we're going to explain the consequences and you know all the pain and suffering it's causing, but we're going to get with the program, and we we're you know we understand the process I do think that that's sort of fundamental to the
0: philosophy. I don't know if that really. Addresses so you can reconcile the, the disparency there, the, the yin and the yang of design from architects and engineers and make that happen, make it work and make it effective.
1: Absolutely. And, and the moment you develop, you, you know, you kind of get through that with somebody. It's a very personal experience. That's why, you know, once you get through these things, you develop clients. Right. Once they see how you work, how you think, how you respond, you've developed clients. It's that same adage I, I mentioned before, the, you know, the trusted lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Once they see you in action, they say, ah, oh, he gets it. I need that. I need that guy. Where is he?
0: A <laughs> couple more it. things. A couple more things, Kirk. What advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? And how do you mentor your young associates? From that perspective
1: so (laughs) two comments first thing i would say whatever i say don't listen to me (laughs) 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 i'm truly an advocate of finding your own way i don't like preaching to people the truths because everybody needs to find their own truths i would say i would hate to talk with my 25 year old self because i wouldn't want to mess anything up i wouldn't say that my life is perfect but I have a philosophy of no regrets. Right, as stupid as I might have been, or as dumb as the, you know, as dumb as I might have been in doing certain things, it brought me to where I am now, mm-hmm. and I learned from those mistakes, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say much at all to my 25 year old self. I might be tempted to, but I'd prefer not to. Um, That's I, interesting. I say, so, it, so it would be a lot of the things that I'm saying right now. Just be be humble. You know, mm-hmm. realize there's a lot to learn and take
0: it all in. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway or in any place where millions of people would see it, what would that say, Kirk? Well, it's a nice closure, actually. Well, uh, today
1: being election day. That's right. 2020, I will avoid any political statements. Good. But <laughs> I will say this, you know, it's circling back from everything I've said about Washington, I would say, It all happens here. Really, Washington, D.C. is a very unique place. And it it does. It all happens here. And I say that as a New Yorker. I mean, as a proud New Yorker also. I mean, I love New York City very much. But but D.C., there is no other place on earth like it. It really does. And it has an amazing history. Um, I've had a, a great time coming back and letting that, you know, through... I love my job because I get to go places that others are not allowed to go. I've been watching the history kind of unfold in front of me. I have endless stories, which now will be part two of your, of your talk. But I, I found uh, Lincoln's bookcases in his, uh, in his summer home where he kept the draft of Emancipation Proclamation. Wow. I, you know, I, I stared in the mirror that, that Martin Luther King stared in before he did the March on Washington. And, you know, it was a little mirror in a dusty restroom in a, in a, in a, in a church up in, in, uh, beyond Capitol Hill. But, um, you know, there's so it's been so fun to discover the history of this city. Um, and then also to be here while we're making history. So I, I would say that it all happens here.
0: Great. Well, Kirk, on that note, thank you very much for your time. This has been a wonderful exploration into, uh, engineering and architecture and design and, and your thought process and the way you look at things, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. He just listen to Kirk Medham of Silman Engineering, who's one of the, the partners there. He, he has quite a career and uh, strong edu- education background and uh, has some very fascinating projects uh, here in Washington with the Smithsonian Museum and uh, all the different uh, Structural projects that he's been working on in his career, and as usual, I have my sidekick Tom Amos to join me here, who actually is a construction manager himself, so he has a little bit of a construction viewpoint to add to this uh, this discussion. So,
2: Tom, take it away. Hey, John. Yeah, really felt relatable here to Kirk's interview, being that I studied civil engineering and had a focus in structural engineering. So, really like this one. I want to tee us up here today talk a little bit about the sustainability aspects that you and Kirk covered so you guys talked about you know some of the net zero homes projects that you both have been exposed to here recently i found some statistics here recently that there are this was from CNBC there are about 5000 net zero homes in the US and over 7000 net zero multifamily home units and D.C. has 317, making it number seven or sorry, number nine for cities within the uh, within North America for most number of net zero homes in a, in a city. So, you know, I think that this area for sure there's, you know, wants to be and has been front runner and kind of some of these sustainability practices. One of the you know, John, you talked a little bit about the geophysical union building, and I was just wondering kind of what your thoughts are on where that kind of industry goes. And do you think that there are kind of benefits or do you think that this is just kind of a pipe dream and, and that it doesn't necessarily solve some of the problems that we've got when it comes to sustainability?
0: Yes, well, on Florida Avenue and in, in DC, right across from the Washington Hilton, is the American Geophysical Union building that was recently re- renovated, and it's basically a science experiment by that group, which is a you know a group of scientists that are studying climate change as well as net zero building renovations. So we were toured through it by the by the engineer who I think I'm going to have on the podcast sometime in the future because he's so interesting. Hmm. Uh, Roger, I uh, can't pronounce his last name, Freishman, Fleischman, I can't remember exactly. But he's very cutting edge on uh, innovative technology for clean energy buildings. So he told us there were, he looked at 100 different technologies. They ended up with about 20 that they implemented in the property, including cisterns on the roof for water, gray water use. I don't have the whole list in front of me, but it was pretty, they had green inside the building for, you know, recycling air. Mm -hmm. They had geothermal constitution of the sanitation system in DC, where they use that for heat. Fascinating technologies. So throughout the building, you saw these unique piping and systems that were built in. Now, this was not an economical situation. This was purely a science experiment. I asked him, I said, so when do you, Roger, when do you think this will be net zero in cost as well as net zero in energy? He said, it'll be a while, John. <laughs> it'll be quite a long time. Right. So it's cool from a engineering standpoint. It's a science type experiment. Some of the features may come to fruition sooner than others as state of the art activity. But, um it's fascinating. It was cool to see, and it it was not structural. it was more uh, mechanical engineering and uh systems engineering as opposed to structural, which is what Kirk's specialty is. right,
2: right. I was watching a video not too long ago. It was on this community that you know kind of pride themselves in in being low emissions or zero emissions in Costa Rica. And, you know, they had all sorts of, you know, wild measures that they had implemented there and, you know, gardens out back that they, you know, utilize for for their sources of food. And, you know, while I'm watching it, the skeptic in me is like, well, this is great, but it's just not practical for, you know, most people, most of the world. It, it's great that they're in Costa Rica and do these type of things. But, you know, I think that the benefit to looking at that and thinking about it is, you know, you do have to be adaptive to your own environment, your own building, your own needs, share with you, I was involved with a project that was, it was an energy conservation project. So the concept was this, that you would go into an old office building or facility, spend upfront capital costs on improvements, whether it's to the HAC system the lighting, window upgrades, thermostats, whatever it was. And then you would see the financial benefit to that implementing those measures over the, the course of the next 15 years on your electrical bill. And my, my personal experience with that, I, I thought this is such a great concept. And I think that with that project, the expectations weren't quite set properly, you know, going into an office building and implementing a more energy efficient HVAC system. There's times where maybe that makes an area a little bit warmer during the summer, a little bit cooler in the winter. And the people were a little against kind of some of those things just because I think that maybe it wasn't sold to them the proper way. But, you know, I I think that there there are great benefits to, to looking at that. And you guys, you and Kirk talk a lot about you know, function versus you know, kind of a, a more architectural or maybe even historical benefit to to a facility. And yeah, if you if you're Smithsonian, it doesn't make sense to change an HVAC system for a building that's got you know historical paintings and artwork and historical stuff within that building. But you know, maybe in an office building, it makes a lot of sense to try to cut down on on your cooling bill in the evenings when there aren't a lot of people in the office or something like that.
0: Another aspect of what we talked about was the, what I call organic activity within a structure potentially. And so I said, is it possible someday to think that nature and or organisms can be part of structure? Mm -hmm. And he's, he kind of smiled at that. He said, can you imagine buildings growing out of the ground literally? And I said, you know, there is tree houses that, were, that are natural that you kind of use and shape to your design. Will we live that way someday in the future? And would that be the most carbon neutral way of living ever, ever conceived, being able to take nature and use its its ability to regulate itself? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, trees survive for hundreds of years, thousands in some cases. How do they survive through climate change? Look at Things from first principles and organic use uh, in in structure. I'm sure people have thought about it. He talked about wood buildings. So Mm -hmm. now instead of using structural steel, they're using structural wood for some of these high rise buildings, particularly in, in Europe now. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. So using more organic materials as opposed to, you know, recreating things with using energy to do them. Well, good. Well, that's that's all I got today, John. Great. Well, thanks, Tom, and thank you, listeners, for joining us once again uh, on Icons of DCR Real Estate, and we'll see you in, on the next next time around.